views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Welcome to Dynamics of Diversity Radio, scripting the new narrative for immigration with leading experts, Kripa Upadhyay and Steve Tanija. This hit show will feature thought leaders and visionaries discussing both challenges and opportunities associated with the dynamics of immigration and diversity in today's world. The show transcends the boundaries of conventional thinking about diversity, removing the borders of our minds while opening our hearts for a new perspective. Creepa and Steve will get rid of that noise that often accompanies discussions on the topic in the media. Whether helping families unite, refugees build new lives, and businesses attract and retain bright young minds, Creepa and Steve remind us of the integrity and insight we need to help keep America in the forefront of change and discovery through the power of its diverse people. Now, here is the Dynamics of Diversity Radio. Welcome to Dynamics of Diversity Radio with Orbit Law PLLC. I'm Steve Tanicho, a partner at Orbit Law and also a co-host of this series. Thank you for joining our inaugural show. Good morning. I'm Kripa Upadhyay, partner at Orbit Law and co-host of the series. We're very glad to have you join us this morning. Also with us in the studio this morning are Dr. Pat Bashili and our first guest, Professor Toyo Mahmoud. Professor Mahmoud is a professor of law and director of the Center for Global Justice at Seattle University School of Law. He is very widely published in the area of comparative constitutional law, international law, legal history, and race and social justice. He has examined the role of immigration and race-based politics in various countries with a history of colonialism, and today will share with us his thoughts on the present state of politics and inclusion of diverse communities in the political process in this country, a very timely discussion, given that we obviously are heading into elections tomorrow, but also given the rhetoric that we have heard the last couple of months, specifically around immigrants and people of color and communities of color in the United States. Thank you for joining us, Professor Mahmoud. Uh, thank you. Welcome, Professor Mahmoud. Um, Professor, you have served in several leadership roles in academia. For instance, you served as a co-president of the Society of American Law Teachers and also on the steering committee for Latina, Latino, Critical, Le- Critical Legal Series, Inc. But in the early stages of your career in academia, what struggles, if any, did you face as a first-generation immigrant from Pakistan? Well, I would imagine the struggles go both ways, one internal and one external. So, you know, coming to the country at, uh, you know, I was in my early 20s, uh, coming to graduate school. Uh, And so, you know, um, culture adaptations, um, learning the nuances uh, of uh, how things go. So there is uh, that part to it. Uh, The other, of course, is what comes at you uh, from the 
outside. Uh, right off the bat, I must say that, you know, uh, coming here as a graduate student and then most of my life, uh, except a few years when I was practicing, being engaged in, in the uh, higher education institutions, uh, one is in a uh, relatively privileged position uh, in the sense that uh, what many immigrants uh, who may not uh, have, um, you know, uh, such educational background or uh, don't have uh, relatively uh, insulated uh, work environments, uh, what they have to go through, uh, fortunately, uh, one didn't have to. But then, uh, you know, when one is walking down the street, uh, then one is anybody. Uh, you'll be reminded of uh, the actor uh, Washington's statement that, yes, uh, I did make $70 million last year, but I still can't uh, hail a cab in New York. Uh, so those kinds of things uh, have happened uh, over the years. Uh, a remark here, a, a, a hate speech. Uh, so I've been victim of hate speech perhaps half a dozen times, perhaps a bit more uh, over the years. Uh, but what I have what I've sustained me is more an eye on those uh, who have it worse off uh, because of where they won their own way with all or their location and the labor markets uh, and the lower on the spectrum you go, the worse things get. Uh, and that has uh, been uh, sort of more my personal, political, intellectual uh, struggle to understand that uh, and try to explain that, uh, try to resist that. Uh, so that would be, so I, I don't take this as too personal a thing, though again, you know, the the ether in which the immigration question floats, uh, which, in, which is both labor markets and race, uh, one cannot be immune from that. Uh, but as I said, uh, uh, relative uh, privileges uh, have uh, saved one from the sort of very dire uh, circumstances that uh, uh, most uh, immigrants, uh, particularly immigrants of color, have to deal with. And going to that, I mean, because you just you just spoke about this. So in the past few months, you know, we've, as I said, we've heard comments, caricatures about immigrants in general, um, but the Latino, Hispanic, Mexican community in particular, and refugees specifically. I mean, refugees have been called snakes, um, and then they've also been compared to a bowl of poisoned Skittles, right? And and it's not just in the U.S. I mean, we're also seeing, obviously, Brexit. And in the election scheme in, in Europe, we're seeing the rise of nationalist parties across Europe. So in your mind, what, at this time, when there is obviously a global refugee crisis along the lines that we've never really witnessed, I think, um, probably since the end of World War II, we haven't seen this level of, of a need for refugee resettlement. What at this time explains this level of xenophobia? Well, that's a wonderful question. Before coming directly to it, I think it's uh, it's important to note uh, that immigration throughout history uh, and throughout the world is primarily a, a labor markets uh, question. Uh, people move uh, 
uh, for jobs. Uh, there is always a pull factor and a push factor. Pull factor meaning where job opportunities emerge and push factor uh, areas where job opportunities contract. So there's always movement of people uh, from contracting economies to expanding expanding economies. Having said that, when uh, the dis- there is a disconnect between uh, the expansion of the economy and inflow in the labor market, uh, xenophobia and resistance and anger uh, are um, are historically uh, the result. Uh, so that has been true in other places, and that has been true in the U.S., uh, which uh, is in some ways a unique place given uh, its uh, settler uh, history. But then there are lots of settler uh, countries in the world. All of Western Hemisphere is a settler societies, and so are many, many in Asia and uh, the Pacific. But coming to towards your question, the other thing I think may be important to note is that U.S. itself, which has had a, in some ways a unique uh, immigration system, also has had phases of opening and closure. And though those phases of closure have almost always been accompanied by vilification and demonization of the outsider, of the immigrant, uh, some sometimes along uh, blatant uh, race, uh, racial uh, racialized lines, uh, sometimes on count of, you know, protection of uh, economic security. Uh, so that all leads me to uh, specifically the question uh, you're raising. So uh, I believe uh, perhaps to my mind, uh, two or three uh, factors are in play here. Uh, one, uh, the economy itself. Uh, that over the last generation now, what has come to be known as globalization, has indeed uh, made a, a quite a remarkable change in the labor markets in the U.S. Uh, the two remarkable features being one, that manufacturing jobs, particularly old-style heavy industry, smokestack industry, as one would call them, that jo- those jobs have declined at a remarkably rapid uh, pace. Second has been generally a, a destabilization of the labor markets, one by unionize, decline of unionization and the rise of con- contingent markets. But contingent markets meaning uh, increasingly a lack of permanent jobs. Most people uh, almost 30 to 35% of the labor market now is contingent market. So the sense of security and stability uh, where, that a permanent uh, job begins is no more. And lastly, I, w- I would say that there is a reaction. Uh, one also, when one in trouble, unfortunately, one tries to find easy targets, and if they are demagogues to fan those flames, uh, things get out of hand. So the changing demography, particularly of urban areas of uh, the US uh, I believe has been a has been a uh, easy and convenient uh, target and all that so on the one hand economic insecurity loss of jobs loss of secure jobs increasingly a feeling that uh, on on part of the uh, racial majorities that they are uh, losing their uh, status as the majority particularly in many 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 urban areas and even statewide. Uh, so that was, I think, a lethal uh, and a very flammable situation anyway. Uh, and then as the presidential campaign over the election campaign over the last two years uh, grew, a lot of demagogues, uh, particularly on, on the right, uh, found it convenient uh, to f- 
fan those uh, those flames, and uh, so here we are. Mm-hmm. Now, Professor, the, the U.S. itself had a history of race-based policy and law against the other. We have seen this in the Naturalization Act of 1790, which restricted citizenship to white persons, and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 sure. that restricted the immigration of Chinese laborers, such as they were not right. able to bring their wives and children. And uh, more recently, we've borne witness to the internment of Japanese Americans. Now, Mr. Trump has proposed a special ID card for Muslims. Given that level of rhetoric, is the U.S. on the precipice of reverting back to the days of race-based politics? I think generally uh, the politics of the U.S. to uh, uh, to a big extent uh, always has been uh, race-based. Race race is a foundational feature uh, of American even foundational structure. One look at the Constitution will will tell you how uh, entrenched that phenomena is. Now, how much it plays out or does not play out? Of course, that that you you just narrated yourself the historic sort of the some of the landmarks uh, are remarkable for for their uh, racial uh, divide between who can come and who cannot come uh, type of thing. Uh, now, coming to your question, it's a it's a it's a complicated one on on many levels uh, because it it shows the race question also in a very interesting way, uh, as uh, many would understand that race is not just a question of pigmentation. Uh, race is a uh, social construction for that. It would be uh, good for people to know that even in the American history, uh, when and where um, the white race got constituted, when the Irish became white, for example, or when the Italians became white, etc., etc., it's a long history. So when the Muslim uh, card is, is played out, I think the the uh, the the baselessness as it were in any any materiality of the race question comes into play because as we all know a muslim is not a racial category it's a category of belief uh, and around the world there are perhaps uh, about a, a short of a billion muslims uh, coming from all kinds of racial and ethnic and cultural and linguistic and uh, national origins and all that but when one is when uses that term in the American context today, particularly given the reservoir of uh, racial conflicts on top of that, uh, the aftermath of 9-11, on top of that, the escalating uh, violence and resulting refugees in the Middle East. Uh, I believe then the the way the demagogues have used the, the term Muslim and they would be banned or they would have an ID or they would have, is is to portray that again in the grammar of a racial question as if one would just look at somebody and know that this is a Muslim, hence should have a race, uh, have a ID card or not. So that's one part of the question. The, the other is, uh, how, would, how, how would one know whether somebody is a Muslim or not? Would there be a questionnaire? Uh, would that or wouldn't that uh, violate uh, you know, a host of constitutional and other provisions? Um, so anyway, without going into it, I think not only is it uh, it lacks any any stable foundations, uh, the the workability of the idea remains very suspect. 
so uh, I do believe that it, it, it's basically a, a, a instrument uh, to demagogue uh, the immigrant question, uh, the other question, the outsider question that the, uh, so betrays a, a paranoia and xenophobia, uh, the, the kind of materials uh, that uh, you know, semi-fascist demagogues have, have always uh, found of great use, unfortunately, also in, in the American history. So that does make it a very alarming thing, because uh, by, by uh, supposing targeting Muslims, uh, it's, it's uh, I think, not very difficult to see who else is being targeted here. Uh, and, and so the position of other, particularly racial minorities and particularly uh, Latino and, and uh, African-American uh, minorities, and for that matter, the Asian and, and Pacific Islanders, uh, becomes very tenuous uh, and, and vulnerable. Uh, and, and again, the genies of paranoia and, and uh, xenophobia are easy to uh, bring out of the bottle. They're usually quite difficult to put back in. Uh, so I'm very concerned that even if the election results, and we will know that tomorrow evening, are not as dire as uh, the threat is, and I'm talking both of the presidential election and the congressional election, which often doesn't get uh, sufficient uh, play. Well, let's, for it, for argument's sake, say that it, it is uh, uh, not as, the result is not as alarming that most of the demagogues don't win, the most shrill voices, anti-immigrant voices, don't make it to the White House or the Senate or, the, or whatever. But does that mean that the issue is going to go over, uh, that the heightened uh, rhetoric, and it's not just rhetoric, uh, we, we've seen over the last year uh, the kind of display of anger, that, and, and, and remember it is also then connected with the quote-unquote the Second Amendment uh, issue, as it were. Well, the media in recent weeks uh, have been replete with uh, reportings on how uh, armed militias, even which we thought were a thing of the past, uh, are back in view and public view, uh, demonstrating, showing their uh, their uh, arms, uh, expressing their their views. So I'm I'm very concerned uh, that uh, forces have been let loose in this election, which will take a, a long time to contain, uh, if at all. Yeah, there was. Um a congressman, I, I forget from what state, but he actually put out a, a tweet, I think, a uh, day before it was. He said, we vote on the 8th, and if, or that he, rather, personally was going to vote for Trump on the 8th, and if Trump didn't win, then he was going to carry a musket on the 9th. Right. Right. Um, right. And that was a tweet that he actually put out. Um, and then there was, you know, again, as you said, there was, there's, there's been quite a bit of coverage about militia in various parts of the U.S. that are allegedly um, or supposedly ramping up on uh, training uh, in the run-up to tomorrow, where they are uh, actively recruiting and, and um, I guess, spending more time training. Who knows what it is that they plan to do with, with, with you know, um, I, one assumes the worst, but apparently there is all of this training that is to be done. And which really brings us to, to I think, the, the one question that I had for you is, and, and you've alluded to this, but what is your gravest fear? Should Trump win? I mean, you know, if he doesn't, I think, as you said, the forces of hate and, and 
the voices of the alt-right that has found this ready space to speak freely about things that they might not have had a space to speak so freely about. They've now found the space and that I, I fear will continue. But what are your fears if Trump should win? I mean, where where does that leave Right. Let, let me let me first um, address the la- last comment you made, and very rightly so, in the sense that the legitimation of this uh, paranoid, uh, hateful, um, unabashedly uh, anti-immigrant, unabashedly racist rhetoric, mainstreaming of that rhetoric over the last two years, uh, I think has been the you know, biggest setback. And that's not a just a threat that has already happened uh, that entity and it's not just one person or one candidate uh, it, it, it has been, it has been normalized uh, that you know whether it's the media or whether it's the talking heads or whether it is opinion makers uh, can with a straight face uh, indulge in, uh, uh, in in conversations and characterizations and incitements, uh, which one would have thought that uh, was beyond the pale, and not just legally, but also culturally and socially and politically. Uh, so I think that harm has already been done, and that is what what makes me uh, very uh, very apprehensive. Coming to your specific question, that if indeed uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, does win the presidency, uh, I think we are in for uh, a, a very troubled times, both directly and indirectly. So for example, even the uh, the forces or the, the, the systemic uh, things which breed xenophobia, they'll be in play. Uh, people may have noticed that for the last nine days when his graph was going up, the stock market was going down. Mm-hmm. And after yesterday's uh, director of FBI's, FBI's letter, which appears to have uh, stabilized a bit uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, the uh, stock mar- market rallied back. That should tell us some, something, mm-hmm. uh, namely that one fear would be that there would, there would likely be a lot of disruption in the economic markets, in the financial markets, and ultimately in the labor markets. And that was what was hurting in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fuel for, so that's one, in in the foreign affairs field, uh, even though the situation is not very rosy as we speak, uh, but, but the kind of statements he has made uh, uh, have a great uh, uh, danger of destabilizing a lot of uh, relationships, alignments, and and uh, uh, further uh, perhaps uh, uh, fuel ongoing conflicts, and that again has a boomerang effect internally in terms of uh, militancy, belligerency, uh, and all that. Now, coming directly to the subject at hand, he has stated some policies. In fact, his his most ammunition that he got, particularly to win the nomination and to a great extent uh, 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 till today, has been on this uh, immigration question. Mm -hmm. And the the kinds of things that 
that he has said, um, um, building the wall, uh, banning people from coming or marking uh, people or IDing people, etc., etc. Uh, uh, any of those, uh, so one can one can uh, imagine, uh, because one thing, if he wins, uh, one can be quite sure of that if he wins, the, the Senate will for sure remain in, in, in Republican hands. And so I think that that would be a very big threat uh, that after a while, uh, both the executive and the judicial branch will be in the hands of a group. I won't even call a party because it's, it's, it's almost a, um, a you know forward group within the party, which is very, very belligerently and militantly anti-immigration. So one can envisage anything ranging from deport, deportation of who, those who are here to curtailment of, of who can come in. Etc. The last alarming thing is that then, if he does become president, it also means that he will fill the existing uh, vacancy on the Supreme Court and any others that may become available, and it is likely that perhaps one or two more may become available. Now, that should alarm again for for, for, for a host of reasons, but coming back to the subject at hand on the immigration thing. So we are painting institutionally a very uh, dire scenario mm-hmm. that both uh, branch, uh, political branches uh, in the hands of a, almost a forward group of anti-immigrant sentiment, and on top of that, a Supreme Court uh, uh, already, as as people know, it's divided four to four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even with one uh, appointment, uh, a, a, a Trump-like appointment uh, uh, would doom any check on the kind, and, and let's not forget uh, that immigration is a plenary uh, power uh, question, and so there, there are very little check uh, on what, uh, uh, so coming to even just the president himself, uh, with the executive powers, as we know, even as recently as under uh, President uh, Obama, uh, a number of times executive actions were used uh, to uh, put in place uh, immigration law-related measures. Uh, so even if uh, Trump has to do it alone. There's a lot of damage uh, that he can do alone. In combination with uh, a Senate back in the control of uh, Republicans, then we are looking at uh, quite dire legislation. And then a Supreme Court uh, appointed, uh, further augmented by uh, Trump, we are looking at a Supreme Court which will have very little uh, by way of protection uh, to uh, the immigrants or those already here, uh, etc. So I think uh, we may be in for a more than a bumpy ride uh, if uh, that scenario unfolds. Yes, more than a bumpy ride, putting it very lightly. Thank you so much. I know you have to run because you've got class, but thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it and it was my pleasure and thanks for doing such a uh, useful and productive program. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor. Okay, everyone, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Rise when I gave the word. Now in the morning I sleep. 
Are you ready for a game changer? Sarah Westall is bringing you Business Game Changers Radio. Sarah brings you leading experts, visionaries, and newsmakers who provide the best commentary on big issues and cutting-edge innovations. Sarah's 20 years as a business executive will help you think like an entrepreneur with expertise, energy, and attitude. Tune in to Business Game Changers Mondays at noon Pacific, 3 Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Get into it for 2016. Do you want more prosperity, clarity, energy, and balance in your life? Join Lynn Brown now for one of her amazing workshops, each focusing on a key part of living your best life. For more information and to register for one of these amazing workshops, visit lynnbrownevent.com. That's lynnbrownevent.com. And get into it this 2016 with Lynn Brown. Tune in to Dynamics of Diversity Radio, scripting the new narrative for immigration with leading experts, Kripa Upadhyaya and Steve Tanijo on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This show will remove the noise that often accompanies discussions on this topic and share a new perspective on the dynamics of immigration and diversity, ever reminding us that together we are all at the core of innovation, excellence, and positive change. Visit OrbitLawPLLC.com for upcoming topics. Have you been seeing numbers like 111 and 222 everywhere you go? Do you feel that the universe may be trying to get your attention, perhaps offering a message of some sort? As it turns out, numerical patterns and certain types of geometry form the very fabric of our reality, from cells under a microscope to the astronomy of our night sky. At Stellar Reflections, we offer special sessions which tap into these patterns, designed specifically to support you on your journey. The 111 and 222 activations are sessions activating new patterns in your energy field, which in turn can help you create new patterns in your life. After just one session with a practitioner, either in person or via distance, clients report gaining greater clarity, becoming more intuitive, and honoring their inner truth as they move forward in their lives. Curious about what these transformational sessions might do for you? Call 425-999-9836 or visit StellarReflections.com. That's StellarReflections.com. Do you want to achieve your goals? Do you want to strengthen relationships with others? Do you want to improve your financial status? Colette Marie Steffen is partnering with Mark Kettenbach to bring you an energetic upgrade online experience. Unfold and develop your full potential. Visit energeticupgrade.com today for more information. That's energeticupgrade.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Pat, and I'm thrilled to be here. Dynamics of Diversity Radio. Uh, and as you all have been introduced to a fabulous, fabulous co-host for the show, it's, uh, well, first of all, let me thank you for launching this show. And uh, I, want, I wanted to get a sense from you. We just heard some of the, some of the most incredible dialogue, I think, um, Calmly, peacefully, but scarily almost. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to hear what you both thought. Uh, Creepo, thank you for joining me, Steve. Great. How, how, are you, how are you feeling your inaugural uh, show? Excited. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm well excited about the show. I think terrified mm. about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Um, and I think just we've had, you know, you and I have had this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, you know this, you know, the firm is made up of first generation immigrants. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm a first generation immigrant. Um, Steve likes to think of himself as an immigrant because he was born in Japan. <laughs> but the firm, I mean, everybody that we work with is predominantly first generation mm-hmm. immigrant. And it's not that we went out and sought them out. It's not like we have a hiring preference for people that are immigrants. But it's just that immigration is, for everybody, a very personal journey. And, it, of course, it lends itself to a certain kind of person, right? right? I mean, people that are drawn to immigration are people that have either had to go through it themselves or had someone in the family that has had to go through it. So it resonates with them. And so from that perspective, um, to be put in this position where you feel like for the last eight months, mm-hmm. you know, things are being said about you. And it's just this unrelenting storm, one after the other, mm-hmm. right? And you're having to just it's like you swat one and there's another one right there. And you swat that one and there's another one right there. And it's just, I'm not sure why it's been so unrelenting, but also what the purpose behind it is. Yeah. Right? Because, and we've, we've talked about this. Yeah. Immigrants in this country have had a long and storied history. Um, and they will continue to have a long and storied history. Um. But it just seems like there's so much vilification and hate of the other, right? Whether it's women, unfortunately, in this election cycle. I mean, we've seen women vilified. We've seen people with disabilities vilified. Not, not, not since how many decades have... I mean, I've been around longer than both of you. And I will say, even if I go back decades and decades, I have not seen this in my lifetime quite this way. I mean, you know... This, I was just, I actually was having this conversation the other day where I mm-hmm. sat down and I don't know why I did it and I wish I'd never done this, but I literally, literally sat down and said, okay, let me try to think of a group that has not been vilified. And I don't think I could think of one. You know, veterans in the army, they've been vilified. Women, people with disabilities, yeah, journalists. I mean, particular journalists have had their names called out and said, well, they should be thrown in jail or they should have had, you know, somebody should do something against them or people with Second Amendment rights should do something against somebody that might potentially be the president of the United States. I mean, nobody seems to have come out of this election cycle unscathed in some way, shape or form. You know, I was asked by one of the listeners last week because we posted an article And the article was called Hillary Clinton, a POTUS without equal rights. Mm -hmm. And and so I uh, the feedback still coming in because I'm known to be apolitical. And so I responded by saying it doesn't matter who would be in front of me today from whatever party. It could be the John the Johnson candidate. It wouldn't matter. In my lifetime, it is not about politics. It's about the dignity of the human spirit. That's what Transformation Talk Radio and the Dr. Pat show has always been about. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not been about one party versus the other. It's always been about 
are we willing to really look introspectively at ourselves? And then are we willing to look at what's going to create a better world? And I think we get so hung up on this being a political cycle that if we were to step back from it and really look at some of the things that were said, um, some of the threats that have been made, you know, I, I shared with you that I, there's a contingency of my family from Brazil, from South America, from Dominican. You know, I, I mean, can you only imagine that level of fear? I haven't had that level of fear since 19, I think, 73 or 72 or, or some, some, something like that. And I think if we could step aside for a minute, and, which we cannot. It's impossible. If you're aligned with one, you're not aligned with the other. It doesn't really matter. But if you step aside and ask yourself this question, my child is going to grow up and her equal rights may not ever come to bear. Mm -hmm. And then you start to think about, is anyone going to be excluded from from prejudice? I mean, we're not just taught we're you know, we focused on a, a couple of groups here, mm-hmm. but that's not really what we're talking about. Any human right that's violated, in my opinion, I'm not sure it matters to me what you look like, what you come from. But, man, this is not the time for us to give up rights of people, mm-hmm. not in the world we live in, because I tell you, if we give them up, there are a few countries that would love to grab them. Mm. And that's my concern. Right. I mean, what do you both think? Well, I don't know. I mean, it seems that there's always been an undercurrent of prejudice and and bigotry, and and it seems like this election year has kind of exposed what's already there, and now people are feeling that it's all right to voice what they've already felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it makes you think that is it a good thing that we can now talk about it freely and, and other people who are, who were not aware of right. all of these prejudices now are, and now, now are aware and they want to have their opinion on it and try to perhaps, uh, you know, teach others, you know, what their culture is about and, and, you know, just to get, information out there so there's not all of these uh, misconceptions and and try to reduce all that hatred and and uh, and prejudices out there mm-hmm. so yeah I play I play table tennis on the weekends and I was playing with uh, one of my friends and you know he, he was really clear about uh, you know from I, I believe from his culture and heritage from what they you know he talks about and he called it the sleeping dragon and you know i had to ask him what that meant and of course i i never really got to fully understand it but you know there's something to be said about bringing that which already exists to the forefront mm-hmm. i mean there has to be in my mind something very positive about this Regardless of how the election turns out, I don't think that we will ever be the same as a country. And that saddens me Mm. because I think I've been living in the ostrich syndrome where absolutely want to believe that 
we're all holding hands and just loving each other. And I think we're starting to discover we're not all on the same page. No. I mean, and I think, you know, it's, it's a story of stark contrast. I mean, I think right after 2008, you know, after President Obama's election, mm. there was all of this talk of how America had finally reached the end of the rainbow, right? We were a post-racial society. Like, we had our first black president. Obviously, there was no race problem in America anymore. We'd seen past race, right? It, there was, like, I remember there being this, this sense of euphoria about America allegedly being a post-racial society, right? And yet, it is unfortunately during his presidency where we've seen the rise of birtherism. Mm -hmm. We've seen the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement because mm -hmm. of the number of shootings against unarmed African Americans. Mm -hmm. But to go from, you know, President Obama's election and, and the hope and change and all of that and, and the, the, the coalitions and, and the things that came around that election cycle to the present state that we're in, where people are being specifically sought out, targeted, called out on Twitter, on the national stage, in language which is really, in my opinion, some of the just vilest, most unworthy terms of mm -hmm. a human being. I don't care what you think of that person. Mm -hmm. You know, no man should feel he has the right to call a woman a pig, mm -hmm. a fat pig. Mm -hmm. Like, that's never okay. Right. That's stripping somebody of their humanity. Yeah. I don't care what you think that person did to you. Yeah. Right? Like, that's just not something... An adult, particularly an adult that wants to assume a position of leadership, should be allowed to do, much less think that that's something he ought to be applauded for doing. And I think it is the applause of that language that frightens and scares me. Hmm. It's the acceptance of that language that frightens and scares me. Yeah, it scares me. And, you know, let's talk about this. I received an email and a picture from... Uh, one of my New York uh, listeners' friends, and it was a picture of of her dad's arm, and uh, her dad had numbers tattooed oh. in his arm, and she sent me the picture, and she said, "Pat, will you post this?" and And I said to her, "You know what would I post?" I said, "Would I be able to post something that would remind us?" Or are we so far away from that time that we don't see the mirror image of it? And it was interesting. It was a picture they had taken her dad, you know, Holocaust, right? That mm -hmm. was him. He's, he's mm -hmm. now gone. Um, but they had documented his experience because why? There's a film coming out mm -hmm. that says it, it, it talks about the journey of people that don't believe it ever happened. Mm -hmm. mm. Right? Yeah. And what, what she was saying is, we have to remember how that started. Mm -hmm. And I think we have generations that don't even know it existed today. Right. Right? Right. But isn't that what the professor was talking about? Isn't he still talking about you have to mark somebody, mm -hmm. literally, 
You have to mark them to know what they are. You have to mark them. But where does it stop? Does it start stop at religion? Do we then go and mark all the gay and lesbian people? Do we mark them? Do we then mark them? And wait a minute. How about our indigenous people? What I love about what's happening, and this is going to sound weird. I'm probably going to get a million emails. When I grew up, when this was happening, and we were marching for equal rights, and yeah, burning bras, of course, there was a rise up, and there's still a rise up. There are people on the land that will not leave that land because mm-hmm. they do not want you to drill that oil there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's a rise up. My friend's from Hawaii, mm-hmm. right? Yep. There's a rise up. And, and I think that's the part that I think the professor was alluding to. You know, one side, the other, two sides, three sides. There is going to be this moment now where the acceleration for people to have a voice are going to come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. are we going to be able to do that with the level of integrity? That's really the question. But I think that's the challenge, too. Isn't it? Right. As mm-hmm. I think I think from where we are now, which unfortunately I think is the abyss, I, mm-hmm. because I honestly I don't. I mean, again, you know, as I said, I'm a first generation immigrant. I came to this country in 98. Mm-hmm. I don't remember rhetoric being this abysmal since I've come to the U.S., right? So yeah. I, I have to believe that there is a greater purpose, right? And I think this is Wh- the When did you come? When did you come? 98. Oh, 98, right. Well, it, it actually was yeah, way I mean, back. I'm, I'm sure it right. was way back. But it's but shocking to you, isn't since it? Since my time right. in the U.S., I have not had to face anything shocking. like this. Yeah. And so I think I have to believe that from this absolute abyss, I think the challenge is we somehow try mm-hmm. and find a way to have these conversations and to build those bridges. Yes, right? we have And to. to help people recognize that irrespective of your faith, your culture, your mm-hmm. racial group, your gender identity, your whatever your personal circumstances may be, right? There is a place for you in society, whatever it is that you do. There is a place for you in society. And there is always a need and there is always a way for you to respect the other, irrespective of whatever differences you may have. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I, I just don't believe that as a country and as a community, we're going to be able to move forward with all of these divisions and subdivisions in mm-hmm. place. Like, it's just, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember uh, marching on Washington, uh, you know, the, the, the Capitol, a- at least three or four times in my young years. Uh, one had to do with civil rights. Mm-hmm. Another one had to do with the war that was going on at the time. Um, another had to, it doesn't matter. There were, there were many times. And I remember being in those situations and never thinking we will ever be together as, uh, as, and I was, you know, I was young, you know, I was in my teens and twenties. And I remember thinking exactly this, the same thought we're talking about here today, that it, that it will never get better. We'll never be able to heal. We'll never be able to come together. We'll never be able to respect each other. And I remember that, you know, I could feel it in my cells even today. But I hold on to the hope because I've seen what has come after that. Mm -hmm. Now, I know I'm not going to. It may take a lot more years than I've got left on this planet (laughs) to see it. But I, I have to hold on to the hope. I have to hold on to the hope because I really do believe as, as human beings, we are much more. Whatever we think we are, I believe we're much more than that. 
And I have to hold on to the idea that our integrity, our human spirit will come forth. I, I have to hold on to that because the alternative will keep me up at night. Well, I think it keeps us up at night, but yeah. then I think we also miss out on so much. More. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that level of hatred, I mean, and I mean, honestly, you know, if Mr. Trump wants to engage in that level of hatred for the rest of his life, I mean, more power to him. It probably consumes 24 hours of mm. his, his time. But I think it's just so emotionally draining oh. to be able to keep up with that level of hate, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? It's 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 got to be hard to be that cynical and that disrespectful and that hateful of everything and everybody in your path. Mm. You're probably just devoid of any sort of social interaction with anybody else, you know, at that point. Because if you have that level of hatred towards everything and everybody that is not like you or that does not look like you or is a part of your family or is a part of your social circle, you're really just a social outcast because you're never going to be able to move through life only being able to interact with people that look like you or act like you or talk like you or are people that you agree with 100% of the time, right? Being human in society means necessarily interacting with people that have different opinions, that are different from you. And that really is a challenge, if that's what you want Mm -hmm. to call it. But it's also an opportunity for you to learn and grow. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, I mean, it is. You know, Steve, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, uh, I I, I totally agree with you. And and before I go through that, uh, you know, our country was built on the fact that we're a melting pot. We we are so diverse and, Mm -hmm. and have all of these cultures that make us stronger as a country, as as one of the forefronts in in many areas, as the 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 leader of of the world, um, and you know, I agree with you that I I feel that I have to have hope that the exposure of all of this hatred will eventually heal, and will we will become stronger in the future. I I don't know when that will be. But uh, I hope our country will learn from the the past mistakes and uh, and grow from that. And uh, I gotta believe that we will uh, grow from this as well. And and things usually gets worse before they get better. So so uh, that is my my hope. I I love what you're saying because it's hard to come to the table and talk about what's on your mind if you're not saying what's on your mind. Mm. Now we know what's on people's minds from all walks of life. Yeah. Um, we, you know, I, I get calls from people that or emails or texts from people that are telling me stories about how they fear for their children to walk in a grocery store now, mm. right, because of who they are. And I just, I, I, it, it is so heartbreaking to think that what's happening in our society today will get at the very core of our youth, of our children. Mm. And, and, and to think that they are going to be unscathed by this. They were not unscathed from 9-11. You know, the level of fear that an entire generation grew up with to this day when they hear gunshots, when they hear, you know, trigger points. It's devastating to them. And I think if not for us older folk, how about come together together? for the children that are here on this planet. 
Mm. I mean, we leave them out as if they're not a population at all. Yeah, I totally agree. Hmm. Well, um, Dynamics of Diversity Radio, I would love for you to let folks know how they can find out about more about you because, you know, you're in this every day. You know, I get to sit here with you, right, <laughs> once a month, which is very <laughs> cool. And But you're in this every day. I mean, you have a booming law practice, which is about, about both, you know, retention and the mm-hmm. highest and best, but also about helping families that cannot help themselves, right? Right. And and at the firm, I mean, we do all of it. We work with companies and corporations, as you said, helping them retain the best and the brightest. We work on employment-based cases, but then we also work with people that are effectively refugees that are fleeing situations of war and desperate situations and are filing for asylum. And we work with families that are unfortunately facing being stripped apart and torn apart from their loved ones and that are undergoing removal proceedings. And mm-hmm. this is absolutely, unfortunately, what, you know, a lot of the times, unfortunately, what we live and breathe every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely something I think that takes a toll on us. As I said, you know, it's uh, there's there are obviously, you know, very happy moments when we're able to keep families together. But there are also, unfortunately, more than more than times, I think, that we care to count mm-hmm. when we have to be the the ones to to break the bad news to families. But we try and do the best we can for clients and we try and be there for them and and do as much as we can for them. And, um, yeah, we'd we'd love to talk to people. Any questions that they have, they're more than welcome to to contact us. Please Um, give out your contact information. Yeah, the office office number is 206-623-3352. You can also find us on the web. um, The office website is www.orbitlawllc.com. We are also on Twitter at Orbit Law, and you can also find us on Facebook. You know, it's interesting we're talking about a couple of groups of people, but I will tell you that when my grandfather came here, is trying to escape from fascist Italy, mm-hmm. And he came here. He walked away from everything he owned. Mm-hmm. And he, would, he was the only one that was able to come in this country. His brother could not. His brother was able to go into South America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't think about that. We think Italians, oh, you're white people. Yeah. But remember, this is not that long ago mm-hmm. when two brothers had to be separated mm-hmm. because of the fear of a government in Italy, where the Pope lives, that they would be hunted down and killed. That's really the bigger picture, isn't it? It's if we're not going to be inclusive by the very nature of who we are, then we are exclusive. That's our next show, everybody. We're going to take a short break. We've got more to come. Want to tell everybody what the next show is going to be about here coming up the next hour? Yes. It's a goodie. Yeah, it is a goodie. Coming up the next hour, we have Mason Donovan, um, who is a principal at the Dagoba Group. And we are going to talk about diversity and inclusion and what those mean, because those, believe it or not, are actually different terms. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion um, in the corporate sector, but also what it means just in society in general. So please stick around. All right, everybody. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
You've been listening to Dynamics of Diversity Radio, scripting the new narrative for immigration with leading experts, Kripa Upadhyay and Steve Tanija on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Tune in next time for a new perspective on the dynamics of immigration and diversity, ever reminding us that together we are all at the core of innovation, excellence, and positive change. Please visit OrbitLawPLLC.com. That's OrbitLawPLLC.com to find out more about how Kriba and Steve are scripting the new narrative for immigration worldwide. <laughs>